Progressive Rugby League. I pushed myself and I'm happy because I enjoyed the moment and now I'm going to the world finals. So said Japan's Ayumi who won her way to the World Breakdancing Championships to be held later this year in Poland. I, John O'Duncan, share this with you, the delightful listener, to illustrate the point that when it comes to sport at the international level in the COVID era, not many have been as up against it as rugby league. Since COVID-19 turned the world inside out in March 2020, there have been, well, precious few games of international rugby league, men's, women's, wheelchair. The term hen's teeth comes to mind. Meanwhile, pretty much every other sport has found a way to keep their international calendar going. It has been a reality check for we lovers of International Rugby League. Gee, back in 2019, it felt like we were on such a roll. But enough with the downer vibe, John O.P. Duncan. In immensely positive news, it seems Rugby League World Cup 2021 will in fact go ahead in 2021. Take that Euro in Tokyo 2020. Of course, things still could well change. But let's just for one day at least put our caution to one side and look forward with buoyancy to a pumping St. James's Park, Newcastle on October 23 when England are set to take on Samoa to kick off what really should be the most intriguing and exciting men's, women's and wheelchair tournaments ever. Our fingers are firmly crossed at Rugby League World Cup 2021 will be remembered for on-field exploits of high skill, creativity and courage rather than some crummy virus. But to cover both bases, let's talk to someone who has in-depth and personal experience with both International Rugby League and said crummy virus. Gavin Willsey is a writer and author who has literally draped himself, bathed himself, marinated himself in International Rugby League over the past few decades, penning the brilliant No Helmets Required, which has spawned a regular column of the same name in The Guardian, as well as the history of Scottish Rugby League. In 2020, Gavin also contracted COVID-19 and has since endured a tricky, ongoing battle with long covid So how is Gavin progressing on the health front? And what are his thoughts on the state of International Rugby League and the upcoming Rugby League World Cup? Well, let's wonder no longer. Gavin Willisey, welcome back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's a privilege to be on once, let alone twice. (laughs) That's right. You were our first ever guest. Did you know that? So um, it's great to have you back on. Yeah, you were. No, I didn't know that. There you go. Well, it's really good to be chatting to you, Gav. Now, last year I got in touch with you to do a pod about rugby league in London. You'd written a great piece in your No Helmets Required column in The Guardian about 40 years of rugby league in London, and I wanted to expand on that, and we might get a bit to that later. You said you were a bit ill, but that we'd get stuck in a week or so later. A couple of weeks passed, and I thought you'd forgotten. All good. These things happen. Uh, Then you got back in touch and let me know that you'd not only had COVID, but you were saddled with long COVID, and that you wouldn't be able to do any potting. Um, highlighting my immense Australian ignorance as to the seriousness of long COVID, I thought to myself, well, I'm not asking you to a game of golf. Can't we have a chat? But then I looked it up online and realized it was serious and brutal and, and pretty scary. So, Gav, before we talk rugby league, can you give us a, a glimpse into your experience with COVID first and foremost and then long COVID? Uh, talking to friends in the UK, it seems pretty common for people over there to either have had COVID or know someone who's had it uh, in Oz, most people wouldn't know anyone who's had COVID, let alone long COVID. So how would you describe your last eight or nine months? Different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, it's 10 months this weekend since I fell ill. Right. Uh, 
recovering slowly, but I'm I'm on track. You know, every, every month I'm getting better than the month before. Mm. But I have been told it could take eighteen months, so I'm only just a, just starting the second half. Wow! And yeah, it's been a very strange experience. I, I basically just fell ill, a bit like man flu for a, yeah. a couple of days. Thought I'd recovered. Went back to work. Felt very, very tired the whole time. And to cut a long story short, I was sent to hospital, um, was tested for over and over and over and over again for things. They couldn't find anything, but I hadn't tested positive for COVID, still never have. Um, But after about three or four months of medics thinking it was something other than COVID, eventually there's people who did have COVID, their symptoms were the same as mine it became clear that, in fact, there are hundreds of thousands of people like me who've never tested positive, but, in fact, must have had it because of the symptoms we've had. My main one now is chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I'm only awake for about three hours at a time, Mm -hmm. um, which is challenging for the managing your day and and work, Mm -hmm. and a bit of brain fog and cognitive problems. So uh, you'll have to forgive me if I suddenly can't think of a word or a sentence stops halfway through, but it doesn't happen very often anymore. And uh, when you were first trying to get me on, it it was happening all the time. And hopefully listeners will just find it entertaining rather than uh, annoying. Well, you know, the good news is, Gab, that you're on the mend. But what did it do to your working life and did it affect how you operated on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, yeah. I was off work for six months. Wow. Um, my writing is actually a, a sideline. My main job, I work for the EFL, the mm-hmm. English Football League's uh, education department, educating young players. Mm-hmm. And I was off, as I say, for six months and they were extremely supportive, still are. And mm-hmm. I'm back now. I've been back for three months part-time. Yeah. Um, one of the problems being that Bob was talking to people and reading emails and being in meetings and all of that was very, very challenging. Yeah. And physically, for quite a bit of the time, as you know, Britain was in lockdown, mm. so no one was going anywhere anyway. Yeah. But doing all your work on a computer when that drains you is, um, but yeah, it, it meant I was pretty much useless for quite a while. Yeah. Well, glad you're in the second half, Gavin, and fingers crossed that uh, it's it's only good vibes from here. And I guess the good news is we've got a Rugby League World Cup to look forward to, or, or do we? I mean, it was a, a bold strategic move on the part of the Rugby League World Cup organisers to announce that the tournament is definitely going ahead. I honestly think that was a very smart play on their behalf. But of course, it's not a fait accompli that we'll get to the starting line this year. But besides the whole NRL participation saga... COVID cases are spiking in the UK again. You'd know better than me, but it doesn't seem to be an appetite to rein that in. So I think it was 50,000 cases the other day, and you'd imagine by October heading into winter, it might be worse. So, Gav, what do you think the chances are of it actually going ahead this year? Well, we're speaking on the eve of the Challenge Cup final, and the news today was that I think it's something like 35,000 people a day Mm. Uh, testing positive a lot of them are young people now which who weren't getting it before and those of us who are vaccinated which is you know there's been an unbelievable mm. vaccination effort mm. which is protecting 80 percent roughly of, of people from getting it yeah. however like you say in australia you might not know anyone who's got covid but they're now saying that maybe one in a hundred people 
are going to have COVID at any time. So it's going to be enormous. And if it carries on at that rate, mm. I, on one hand, cannot see how the World Cup will go ahead if it keeps going up and up and up and up. Mm. Not because lots of young people are going to have COVID and not be particularly ill, but because of the, the knock-on effects and long COVID. Mm. They think 10% of people get long COVID regardless of their symptoms. Mm. If, you know, if 10% of... 50,000 people a day are getting long COVID, they're off work for months mm. and things fall apart. You know, a lot of companies are hanging in there at the moment with a lot of staff either self-isolating or off because they're ill. Mm. But it, I was on the press conference that the World Cup did on Thursday and it was very interesting indeed. And I think there's a lot of politics being played. Mm. I don't know this, but I got the feeling that the British government have pushed them to make this statement. Yeah. There were quite a few comments, especially from Troy Grant, head of the uh, IRL, about the support of the government mm. uh, and how desperate they are for it to go ahead because they want Britain to look like it's operating fairly normally. Mm. The worry is that it's three months away and who knows what's going to happen. In yeah. If things carry on as they are, I would be amazed if it happened. Whilst two months ago, I would have been more confident than I am now. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, having spoken to some of the Australian-based administrators, not to do with Australia, but other yep. other countries, they are extremely sceptical. Reading between the lines from what they've said to me, they assumed it wasn't going ahead and are now in something of a panic mode. Right. Because there's not only all the NRL players who may or may not commit, but if you think of countries that have got volunteer staff and maybe a dozen or more part-time players, mm. they've suddenly got to arrange five or six weeks off work mm. and commit to that at relatively short notice. I wouldn't say it's definitely happening. I really hope it does. Yeah, it, it seems like a maybe a 50-50 prospect at this stage, but uh, we can be optimistic, I guess. And I guess, Gav, you've touched on it in that answer, but there has been a lot of talk down here about postponement of the tournament for a year. And on the surface... You know, there's a reasonable argument to be had, you know, delay it one year and you're more likely to have a full strength tournament, less likely to be encumbered by COVID-related restrictions. From a tournament organiser's point of view, what were the costs of postponement? It seems the UK game and tournament organisers are desperate to get it going in 2021. Why exactly was that? You mentioned government pressure. Why exactly does it matter that the tournament is played this year and not next? It's a really, really good question. And costs wasn't actually discussed at the press conference. That question wasn't asked, unfortunately. I think that the pressure is on because they want to, like I say, they want to host a major tournament. The government have given, I think it's about £25 million to this. Mm. And to quote Troy Grant, the support of the UK government has been unprecedented in rugby league history. Mm. And I also feel the IRL... Uh, from what Troy Grant said, are desperate for it to happen because they've got to get the money in the bank, mm. bearing in mind that there was no money in 2020 because there was no mm -hmm. international rugby league, as you said. On the surface, postponing it a year, well, if you compare the Euros that just happened, it didn't do them any harm whatsoever, really. Obviously, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes and you know, it would be an absolute nightmare to have to rearrange a whole tournament but I guess it's been an absolute nightmare anyway for them mm. I, I feel desperately sorry for the organisers who've been brilliant mm. having this in the back of their minds the whole time 
what if it doesn't happen? Mm. And I guess they're, they're talking also wanting not to clash with the Football World Cup and there are a couple of big world tournaments that they don't want to get stuck in the, the wake yeah, of, I guess. Yeah, they've said that. They, they have said that, but if it was the same dates as now, you mm. know, next year, it would only be the final would clash. It would be in the first week as the, at the start. There'd be a one-week overlap mm-hmm. with the Football World Cup. So I don't see why they couldn't bring the Rugby League World Cup forward a week. Right. I think there's a lot of talk about that, but also you've got to remember that the Premier League will be in full swing mm-hmm. until quite close to the Football World Cup this year because it's it's a Winter World Cup. Sure. So there there isn't going to be this massive build up to the World Cup for six weeks. Yeah. Football one. Mm-hmm. Life is just going to tick along in our sports world, and the Rugby League World Cup could be in there. So I think that's a bit of a red herring, to be honest. Okay. Right. I suppose that the other consideration is that there's no guarantee that the world will be back to normal in 2022 either. And I suppose that's probably on the mind of John yeah, Dutton that, and co. That, that's been said as well. Yeah, yeah. Who knows where we'll be then? Yeah. And then I guess, as he said in the, his interview on the BBC, and I guess as is obvious, everyone in Australia slash New Zealand have a, a radically different approach to COVID than the UK. And I guess that's because of the initial experience that, each country had it's it's been so different australia and new zealand have had relatively few cases and deaths and it remains to be seen what the appetite is uh, to live with the virus down here because living with the virus will mean more cases and deaths than we've been used to and you know there's a definitely a conceptual understanding that we've had uh, that we have to emerge into the world and we can't wait out the virus and that a vaccinated population should be able to largely handle covid but it's one thing to have that conceptual understanding and another uh, accepting it and putting it into practice in the real world, uh, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get there, but the transition might be slower compared to UK and Europe uh, because of our different experience. And so, yeah, there's no guarantee we'll be ready, right or wrong. I'm not getting into that, but I suppose there's no guarantee that October 2022, when a postponed World Cup would be theoretically held, that things would be back to normal. So I guess they're thinking, you know, we've got this World Cup in 2021, we've worked so hard, we've put everything in place, let's just get it going. And the thing is, Australia, you have the big advantage of being an island and being able to yeah. close down your borders. And, oh no, hang on, we did as well. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> if, if only we'd realised we were an island and we well, shut up shop for a while. Well, Gav, um, if it does go ahead, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. And in the spirit of optimism, uh, let's assume it will go ahead. And it is on track to be the, the best tournament ever. You guys do big sporting events better than anyone really and I can just imagine what the vibe will be like especially during those first weeks in the group stages when all teams will be participating the games being shared around the rugby league towns the communities getting behind their adopted teams it's just going to be magnificent we Aussies won't be able to make it this time around and I know many listening will be bristling at that fact but in any case I thought it would be a good idea to look forward to some of the matchups you're excited by Gab as someone who's been through a fair bit as looking to better times on the horizon, your experience is kind of emblematic of rugby league in the UK, a, a tough, tough grind, and now hopefully you can enjoy better times. So take me through some games you've got your eye on, some that you'll be attending, some that are must-see. What, what's on your list? Well, you're right. Uh, as soon as the draw was made that day, I had to planned out what games I was going to go to. And I think I'll probably end up going to fewer than I had originally intended, but... Um 
games that really appeal to me and jump out are the ones I think that are going to matter, uh, that are really going to decide things. So the opening game, England and Samoa, mm. uh, as I've pointed out several times in things I've written and on social media, that is absolutely massive because if England win that, they've got a fairly clear path to semi-final yeah. against probably Tonga. If they lose that, they have got a nightmare path to get to the final. Mm. And I think it's been that's been really overlooked by a lot of people. I was pointing out how ludicrous it was that Super League is going on until two weeks before that game. Yeah. Meaning that Sean Wayne won't have a full-strength team to play with and, until he kicks off against Samoa. Mm. And I was mocked for saying that. I just said, just wait till you see what Samoa team's going to be. Because, you know, that game is enormous. Yeah. Then really it's the groups where, I mean, usually you can look at a group and you think, right, we know the two that are going through from there. Mm. The groups that I really think are, are delicately balanced is looking at Group C. That's terrific. You know, you've got to assume New Zealand will win it. But then Lebanon, Ireland and Jamaica mm. fighting over the second spot. Lebanon, if they have their NRL players, very competitive. But Ireland, Ireland have got 13 Super League players last mm. time I counted. No, 17, I think. If England don't steal half of them, yeah. Ireland could really shock a few people, I think. Right. So the, the Lebanon-Ireland game on a Sunday afternoon at Lee looks like an absolute low-profile, nothing game that no one will be talking about. But, you know, I think that will be really tasty. Mm. Jamaica are going to have a fantastic following for their games against New Zealand at Leeds and mm. Ireland at Leeds. The opening game, Jamaica-Ireland at Leeds, I think. Fantastic. I think that'll be superb. And then in Group B, you know, everyone will assume Australia and Fiji romp it. But what happens if the top players aren't there? Mm. And Australia could bring, you know, pretty much any team and, and still win that group. But what if Fiji's NRL stars aren't playing? Mm. You know, Scotland have got 13 you know, players playing in Super League this season and they're hoping to bring about three from the NRL. Italy, at full strength, would be pretty strong. That's not a foregone conclusion if the Fijians aren't at full strength. Mm. I fear for Greece against England, Samoa and France. A little part of me is slightly disappointed that France are in such a tough group mm. because I think they're going to be much better than they have been yeah. for many years. And having England and Samoa, if they were to shock Samoa, for example, in the final group game, that, yeah. that would be fantastic. It would yeah. be great to go to that last game with France still being in with a, a chance of getting out of the group. Yeah, well, theoretically, that, that should be all to play for. That should be the case. Yeah, for that last game. But yeah, we'll see what happens. But yeah, you're right. There's so many wild cards about availability and, and what kind of teams will actually show up. But hoping that yeah. most teams will be close to full strength because according, well, once again, according to the organizers they've had conversations with the the players association down here and there seems to be a an enthusiasm to to get over there and represent the country which is really really positive but then again you know they're currently in a in a bubble at the moment so we'll see what happens in a, in a couple of months it's hard to really speculate gav there's a couple of there's a couple of really strange games just to say yeah, yeah. like greece france on a monday afternoon in doncaster Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as I said, it'll be the most fun anyone's ever had on a Monday afternoon in Doncaster. <laughs> but it's school holidays, and you know there's some, been some thought put into this. That yeah. I'm imagining there's going to be half of Doncaster's school kids there. It's a big place. Yeah. That sort of game, and 
Tonga against the Cook Islands at Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough has never hosted a rugby league match before. Mm. These are the sort of games where if a tournament isn't set up well and promoted well, they're desperate affairs with hardly anyone there and nobody caring. Mm. And we've, we've seen that before in, in the 2000 World Cup. There were games like that. Mm. But I think those two, and amongst a few others, are going to be I was there type moments yep. I think the atmosphere will be terrific and, and they'll be unique games. Yeah. in places where the locals will be saying we've got a World Cup match I mean I know Middlesbrough held a match in the 66 Football World Cup but Doncaster yeah. doesn't get a lot of World Cup matches Yeah, these are going to be special days yeah, and you get the feeling the organisers have got uh, every sort of contingency covered, so those games, are, I imagine, will be still very well supported. Yeah, I mean, for me, Gav, I'm excited by the new teams, I guess, just to see how they go, Jamaica, Greece and the men's, Brazil and the women's, Norway, Spain in the wheelchair. It's just so good to be able to witness uh, it all unfold, and uh, I'm extremely envious of you guys over there. Do you have a, a surprise packet for the tournament that you'd sort of, if you had to define one team that could be a surprise packet, who, who would that be? say the surprise will come between, all depending on what sort of teams they put sure. out, but I could see PNG potentially reaching the semi-final yeah. I could see the Cook Islands full strength Cook Islands mm. being a surprise team, and then whoever out of Ireland and Lebanon puts out the, the strongest team with the greatest spirit, you, you never know with one of those two, yeah. but, but I was with the Scotland team as a media guy in 2013 when we got to the quarterfinals and you need some luck yeah you need things to go your way to not have injuries and to take advantage of maybe a surprise result elsewhere yeah somebody not really showing up a lot of things can fall into place and suddenly somebody who nobody expected has progressed further so i'm really looking forward to seeing who that will be yeah if i had to choose one i'd probably go cook islands they never get much press but they always generally have a strong team they've got plenty of nrl players and and super league players to choose from so they'll surprise a few people i think what about france we're we're such fans of french rugby league done a lot of shows on the game there and i know you've written a lot about it too so many good things happening there at the moment catalans and toulouse leading their, their respective competitions plenty of good french players all over super league in the championship luke lacoste looking the goods at, at the head of the french Federation looks like France might even get the 2025 World Cup. So much positive news. You just want them to land something on the back of this. You know, they've got to be given the 2025 World Cup. You'd love to see Catalans and or Toulouse win the Super League and Championship. And of course, you'd love to see a strong performance in the World Cup from the, the men, women and their world leading wheelchair team. There's so much good happening. You just want them to land some of it. Do you know what I mean? How do you see France looking? Well, I agree with all of that. Absolutely spot on. We have the same opinion on it. France's national performances in this century have been absolutely disgraceful. When you look at the players and then look at the results, they've been enormous underachievers and it's been pathetic, really, the results they've, they've had and what they've done. You know, I think failing to win the European Championships when placing the Four Nations was up for grabs when, when Scotland beat them to it. And the, what the last... World Cup that they got through to a quarter final in 2013 because David Mead missed a kick from in front of the goal that would have knocked them out and they got through with one win. So they've been massively disappointing, but as you say, they've never had a stronger side as they've got now since you've got to look at late 80s yeah. before the game went full time everywhere else when you know when they were beating Great Britain mm. and competing with England. 
So I'd like to think that, you know, starting against Greece, they should dispatch Greece, although I did see Greece against Scotland in the qualifiers and they were a decent side. That's right. And then it put up a good game against England. And as we've said, if they go into the final game against Samoa, knowing a win would take them through, then that would be tremendous. They've just got far more, far better players mm. than we've ever seen. But Arthur Moore tonight again was superb. Yeah. Garcia was fabulous. The top of the league for a reason. That's right, yeah. And I guess the one difference this time around is in the the coaching ranks with Trent Robinson on board. So hopefully that might make a difference as well. The biggest thing with that, yeah, the image it gives you straight away. Yeah. You can't imagine anyone, unless they're injured, saying they don't want to play. Exactly, yeah. Um, Which I think has happened in the past. There's going to be every French player wants to be in there. Yeah, exactly. Now, Gav, it seems to me like, for the first time in my living memory, we've got ourselves a genuine World Cup uh, on the men's side where a few teams could absolutely win it. But really, as far as UK Rugby League is concerned, you feel there's only one result that could make it any more than a, a fading memory for the wider mainstream sporting public. So, Gav, can Sean Wayne manufacture something for the game over there that hasn't been done in, in 50 years? By that you mean win it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could do. It could do. I actually think if England get to the final by playing exciting rugby league, mm. I, I think that will have the effect that we want okay. the tournament to have. Yeah. Because you'll have seen the utter madness here when the England team got to the Euros final last week. Mm. We don't get to finals in England. It, it doesn't happen very often yeah. in any sport. When we won the Cricket World Cup two years ago, that was a, an incredible experience that, that was at Lords. The Rugby Union bombed it when they were hosts. Sean Johnson killed us in 2013 <laughs> in, the, in the last few seconds at Wembley. So we, we don't get to finals. Mm. And I remember in 2013, the utter devastation, not that we weren't going to win it, because I don't think many people thought we would beat Australia. Mm. But it was devastation because the country sporting public were watching mm. and willing us to get to the final. And you've got a week then in the build-up, depending on what else is happening in, in sport. There's a lot of momentum you could get yeah. building up to a final. I think while Sean Wayne would be devastated to lose a final, I'm sure we all would, getting to a final and playing well would be That's tremendous. the big thing. Yeah, and I think what I like about this time is that I know we've not played really for three years so it was always going to be a slightly different team but I think the team could look quite a lot different from what Australia and New Zealand NRL fans are used to seeing Mm. yes you'd expect George Williams to be playing and and probably Whitehead and some of the NRL guys but there's players like Morgan Knowles the the loose forward from St Helens who's who played for Wales in the last World Cup, Paul McShane at hooker from Cass, who will be playing in the Challenge Cup final. Mm. Guys like that, which you don't really know about unless yeah. you really follow the game, might come as very enlightening surprises. I, I just, one thought that hit me when I was thinking about how England might have something different this time was mm. Kevin Sinfield, the first time he played against Australia as a, 19-year-old or whatever he was, Mm. Great Britain won. He then played, I think it was 12 or 13 consecutive defeats against the Kangaroos. Mm -hmm. And there are quite a lot of players who experienced that. And I think if you're fielding the same team every time and getting the same result every time, 
eventually, you know, the kangaroos must be going into games like that thinking, oh, it's this lot again. <laughs> They're their best players, but we beat them every time. I don't think that'll be the case this time if, if we get to play Australia. Yeah, I suppose that's the silver lining of uh, not having played for the last four years against each other, I guess. It would have been nice yeah. to have a kangaroo tour, but I guess that, that could be a silver lining. Look, Gav, more broadly, you follow all sports and are well-versed in international sporting tournaments. How do rugby league World Cups compare? Does it feel like a, a genuine world sporting tournament? Where does this tournament sit in terms of feel to you? I think you'd say it was this is the second level, maybe something similar to say the Champions Trophy in cricket. I always find it really hard to compare rugby league with, or rather, I find it very hard to find anything that is similar to rugby league mm. because there isn't. It is so unique in Britain, the size of the sport, the coverage it gets, the attendances, the, the profile, the history, all of that. There's nothing the same, nothing similar. So I think it's the same you'd apply to a World Cup. It's one of those where people who are into rugby league know all about it. Uh, I should think if you live in the towns where there's going to be games, you'll know all about it. I don't live in or near a rugby league town or city and mm. I would guess if I asked 100 people in the high street where I live not a single one would know it was happening mm. but every game is going to be live on the BBC across all three tournaments mm. so Huge. the amount of coverage and the momentum will start to gather they are doing a lot of trailers for it off the back of rugby league programs on the BBC mm-hmm. and I guess eventually nearer the time that'll all become about the, the World Cup but as I said before we have such a busy sports world like like you do mm. that there isn't massive build up to tournaments for the general sporting public they they just almost suddenly happen you know yeah it's um, a bit like the Olympics isn't it like, that's coming up next week and, and I was like oh yeah that's yeah. right and once it starts you'll you'll get into it I guess yeah yeah and it'll be everywhere and, and depending on what's happening elsewhere it could become a really big story mm. I find it a little bit hard to answer that question because in 2013 I was with Scotland yeah and we were up in Workington mm-hmm. which is you know tucked away and then in 2017 I was in North Queensland for that group yeah right in Cairns and Townsville yeah and in Workington the whole place went absolutely mad but we had no idea really what was happening elsewhere. Yeah. If you're with a team, you can't really um, assess a whole tournament. You can only really say how it felt where you were. Yeah. In 2017, I, I went to Cairns, which seemed to embrace it and think mm. that the World Cup was great and there were posters everywhere and great atmosphere at the game. And then I went to Townsville, which had everything, you know, all the posters were up and the crowds were similar in size, but... I got the feeling that Cairns thought it, this was really special because mm. they don't get events like that very often yeah. and they really seemed grateful uh, and I got the feeling Townsville just sort of shrugged its shoulders and said, mm, yeah. it's not Cowboys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me the Rugby League World Cup took a, a turn for the, the better at 2013. That was a, a big step in terms of like a, a classy tournament and... 2017 in Australia and New Zealand and PNG, it had good moments, but it didn't quite have that cohesive feel. But it sounds like 2021 is very much going to be the best yet. I expect so, yeah. And, and a lot of places are quite close to each other where the games are across all three tournaments. Yeah. So whole communities 
not just the host towns, but say you're in South Yorkshire, there's games in Doncaster and Sheffield, or if you're in Leeds and there's Leeds and York and Newcastle. So yeah. if you live in the north, there are unbelievable opportunities to go and see games and the tickets are really cheap as well yeah. for most of the matches. And that was a criticism in, in 2017 in Australia. I heard yeah. that quite a bit, that they overpriced it and undersold it. Yeah. They didn't promote it, just thought people would turn up. Yeah. And one thing that we, we should also not forget is the, the importance of the Women's World Cup and the Wheelchair World Cup as a, a way to you know broaden the appeal of rugby league. And I think those tournaments will be really attractive to the wider public. And having the, the three tournaments going on at, at once is a really clever move. And we know how great Women's Rugby League is, but Wheelchair Rugby League, for anyone who's seen it, is genuinely amazing. Seen a game, I'm ashamed to say, but I um, have booked in in my own little diary, bought tickets for England Australia Fabulous. at the Olympic Arena, which is going to be great that they're playing where the 2012 Olympics was, and for Australia, Spain, and England, Norway. So, oh, wow. yeah, I'll, I'll be seeing it for the first time, and I think it's going to be superb. You're right, also, about the women's sport. Troy Grant said that this is just an extraordinary uh, mm. broadcast opportunity for women's sport. And just seeing how women's sport has been covered mm. here in the last six months, a year, 18 months, something has changed mm -hmm. considerably. The inclusivity and diversity, and especially the BBC, are going the extra mile to be fair with their coverage. Yeah. Obviously, there's an awful long way to go, but women's cricket is everywhere yeah. on the BBC. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're going to do the same for rugby league. They're going to get it is an incredible opportunity, and especially the, the England team. I have seen a lot of the, the players play, the individuals playing for their club sides. Mm. And you know, I'm not saying England are going to win it, but they're going to win some games and win some hearts. Yeah, yeah. I think hopefully they'll, they'll have an improved performance from 2017. I think the Super League has only been a good thing for them. Now, Gav, you've got your finger on the International Rugby League pulse. Uh, is there a part of the world outside the World Cup nations where you think there could be some potential for the game? Absolutely, yeah. I half-heartedly, not half-heartedly, slightly wryly suggested that if Australia aren't coming, bear in mind that this question was actually asked of John Dutton and Troy Grant, mm. was there anybody on standby? Right. And he said there will be. Replacement teams will be lined up. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, who can that be? And one of the only answers surely is Serbia, mm -hmm. as the country that missed out in the playoffs were murdered by Scotland and Greece. Mm. But have got, I think it's the fourth biggest domestic rugby league scene in Europe. Wow. They've got a lot of players. Uh, they got back playing after COVID. They've played two internationals this summer. If you were looking for a deserving cause for yeah. the amount of work that's gone into a domestic game, you'd say get Serbia in there. <laughs> I would fear for them if they were going in yeah. instead of Australia, but I should <laughs> think Italy and Scotland would be delighted. <laughs> but yeah, the main part of the world, I, I say, is, is Africa. Okay. You know, Nigeria, Ghana, Cameroon, they've all got Rugby League is up and running there and developing quickly. Mm -hmm. There's more teams playing there than there are in some of the countries competing in the World Cup. Yeah, literally. that's exciting. Yeah. There's more Rugby League in several African countries than there is in, in Scotland and Italy and, and Greece. Yeah, very exciting. So I think in 2025, we hopefully we'll see an African 
team in the finals. If it's in France, which it looks like, wouldn't it be great if Cameroon mm. were in? Mm. And then, you know, maybe the tournament after that, they'd be more competitive. Yeah. Now, Gav, just to change tack a bit, all those months ago, I, I wanted to chat to you about the, the state of rugby league in London, 40 years after Fulham RLFC made made a bit of a rugby league splash in the capital. So let's get to it. Now, about two years ago, pretty much to the day, we met and you showed us around Trailfinders, the then home of the London Broncos, essentially a tennis complex. Uh, we watched the Broncos beat St. Helens and they were making a brave run to survive the relegation chop, which they ultimately just fell short of. Uh, back then, things seemed to be going okay, but I remember even then when I asked you what could be done about the state of rugby league in London, you basically said, not much. Two years later, it's a bit of a mixed bag. They're, they're out of Super League. They're well down the ladder of the championship. They've just parted ways with their coach. It seems their fans aren't really showing up to games. Then again, they've finally found themselves a, a decent ground to play at. Uh, what are you thinking now? Is it as precarious as it looks? It is precarious as it looks, but um, not that I would want to accuse you of misquoting me, uh, but I don't think I said nothing could be done. <laughs> no, sorry. I maybe, I maybe tempered your thoughts of, well, you saw for yourself what it was really like. Yeah, A lot yeah. of people who don't go to rugby league in London think just having a London team in Super League for example will be a wonderful thing and will change everything Mm. I'm a London Broncos fan let's get that out there you know 25 years of going to watch them and also a London Scholars fan they're my two nearest teams I love them to do well at the moment they're still playing at Trailfinders they haven't moved to the the new stadium at Wimbledon yet they're mid-table in the Championship and the crowd last weekend was estimated at 200. So that's what we're talking about. Let's sort of get that clear. They're a tiny club with a staff of maybe half a dozen. The only thing that is slightly misleading is that they're full-time, and they've got a group of ex-Super League players who are probably reasonably well-paid, and then a lot of local youngsters, which is uh, brilliant, Mm. brilliant to see. However, they're paid a, a, a small amount, and the best ones, therefore, are just picked off by the other Super League clubs. Mm-hmm. So if the sport wants to make the most of London, it's got to make some decisions about what it wants to do with it. At the moment, it's just plodding along, creating some players for other clubs, mm. which is tremendous. I think there's something like 15 London rugby league products playing in Super League, mm. which when you compare, which people do with what Melbourne Victoria have produced, for the NRL, mm. it looks amazingly successful. So the work done in the academy system with next to nothing financially is remarkable. The talent is there, the athletes are there. There's also thousands of rugby union players who can be picked up and tried in rugby league at quite a young age, some of whom turn out to be stars. So it's got academy status for the next three years, or the next eight years, I think it is actually, sorry. Mm-hmm. But that's the easy side of it in many ways. What they do about the shop window, London, the Broncos, mm. is another matter. People saying they just need to be in Super League is a nonsense. London Broncos at the bottom of Super League, playing at Trailfinders with a 1,000 people there, mm. isn't promoting rugby league in London in the way you want to promote it. Yeah. The new stadium at Wimbledon is, uh, or looks, I've been there, not many people have, but it, it looks lovely. It's about, I think, 10,000 seats. 
perfect yeah. for Super League and the club have apparently finally signed off on a long-term deal for it which is superb again it's it's another move it's another 30 to 40 minutes away from where they're playing it's, I think for your people who listen who are in Sydney just imagine imagine Newtown Jets moving to a different ground in Sydney every mm. three years on average yeah. and and wonder how many fans that have left after 40 years of doing that yeah yeah <laughs> the Broncos being alive is the miracle but the sport needs to have a, a strategy for London and like many things in rugby league there doesn't appear to be one yeah Gav yeah, I've only followed UK rugby league properly over the last few years and in that time, I've had a few thought bubbles that I'm sure can be just answered with John O. It's just not that simple. But hey, here's a good time to air them. In 1980, the team was called Fulham, but they've mostly been called London. In the UK and Australia, you could argue it seems sports fans have more attachment to a local area. You know, the Premier League, there's several London teams, but none of them are called London. In Rugby League, it's similar in Sydney. So would London be better off picking a part of London and sticking with it? Uh, is London just too big for people to identify with and get passionate about? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> the problem being, it, each name change has been forced on them, you know, without boring people. Yeah. They started off as Fulham because they were launched by, well, in conjunction with Fulham Football Club, playing mm. at Fulham. They stayed as Fulham after moving from there for a while. Then there was no connection to Fulham, so they had to change. They became London Crusaders. Mm. Then the Brisbane Broncos bought them, yeah. so changed the name to London Broncos. Then they went bust, basically, and were salvaged by a decision to move to Harlequins and become Harlequins Rugby League, the mm. Harlequins Rugby Union Club, which is a massive brand. Mm-hmm. That had great potential, and they got the biggest crowds that they've had since they were Fulham. Mm. Finally averaged just around 5,000, which was perfect in that ground, mm-hmm. but still lost money, and Harlequins lost interest, and they went back to London Broncos. And There are many, many problems but moving around so much mm. has been a necessity. And so being called London has actually probably been a quite, right, quite yeah. a good thing in some ways. Yeah. Because uh, if you move into 10 different homes... You can't call yourself London North Broncos. London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And calling yourself North London or South London, no one really cares about that too right. much either. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other thing is that for entirely different reasons, the main rugby union clubs in London are not called, generally not called after the areas they're from. Right. Saracens, Harlequins, Mm. Wasps, London Irish, London Welsh, and most of them have moved all over the shop as well during the professional era. Mm. And I I mention that because, you know, they've managed to, to different extents, make it work by promoting the brand. So, you know, the brand of the Broncos, it doesn't matter where they're playing, it's the Broncos, you want to go and see them. But those clubs who managed to succeed, particularly Saracens, spent tens of millions of pounds doing it. Yeah. Um, David Hughes, who's owned the Broncos for 15 years mm. or more, has also spent a fortune because uh, it, it's very expensive to... Mm. Um, if you think what the Broncos were doing for many years, they, they had a dozen or more NRL players living in London and that's going to cost the wages relocation the uh, accommodation it's a very expensive game and when you're getting three or four thousand to watch it's just money yeah. disappearing down the drain tell us a bit about david hughes the club owner because 
yeah, like you say, he's really kept the club afloat in the recent period. But he doesn't seem to me to be the typical kind of benefactor that knocks people's doors down with uh, ambition. He seems content to put enough in to keep the show on the road. But every time I read an interview with him, it seems he's hinting without being explicit, you know, hey, guys, I'm not going to be doing this for much longer. Uh, What's he like and how long will he stick around? And is there any hope without him? I would say that's that's exactly how he comes across. He's he's not a young guy. I, I think he's probably in his seventies. Mm. Makes his money in oil, so he's probably got a fair bit. And like you say, he's he's filled a roughly a million pound hole most years. I think mm. that's the, the, the ballpark figure. Twenty million quid, I think he's put in. There's mixed opinions, I think, about David Hughes' ownership. The club have just existed in many respects. They haven't been ambitious. A lot of talk about, oh, well, we got into Super League and nearly stayed up. Well, the coaching staff and the players did a magnificent job to shock Toronto in the playoffs mm. and get into Super League. And then they didn't invest in the team at all because I think everybody assumed it just come straight back down. Mm. They had the opportunity after a good start to spend some money. In the end, they eventually signed one player, I believe, Brock Lamb, when it had been crying out for three or four players would have been done enough I think mm. you know they only went down by a point or two yeah. um, so I didn't get the feeling they really wanted to stay up that's truth be told I'm sure a club would people who work there would say that's not true mm. but I would say well, where's the evidence what, what did you do other than the players on the pitch what did you do to try and stay in the league and when David Hughes eventually hands it over that will be the time when it'll either have to go to a part-time operation that works at an even lower level now than it does now, or somebody else will come along and say, right, now is my opportunity to do this in a big way Mm. rather than a small way. Sure. And what about the old idea of, you know, just market it to Aussies and New Zealanders in London? There's heaps of them there. That sounds uh, reasonable enough, but I'm assuming that falls into the category of it's just not that simple. Thoughts? They did do that, actually. They did it when the Broncos played at Brentford, which was great fun. They played there for about four or five years, probably, in the uh, early 2000s. They had a mainly Australian team, and the sponsors were VB, and okay. my main memories of it on Sunday afternoon, sunny Sunday afternoons at Brentford with groups of young Aussies and Kiwis staggering around with (laughs) cardboard uh, boxes of VB buckets of it and it worked to an extent but how many times do you want to go and watch second rate and I mean second rate as in it's not the NRL Mm. uh, second rate rugby league in in London when you've come over here to have a good time you know I I think back when I went to Sydney 20 years ago I went to watch uh, a football match soccer match at North Sydney Oval and it was a a lovely night great fun Mm. but I thought I've come here to watch rugby league in Sydney I've not come here to watch more football Mm. and I think maybe by all means get Australians and Kiwis to come and watch but they don't identify with the Broncos really as their team Uh, I think when, when there were a lot of star players from the NRL there like you know Rusty Borden and Dennis Moran and Jim Dimmock and Jason Hetherington and Richie Barnett, those guys, you could market that and they would come and watch from West London. But there are not enough of them that would come often enough to make it a business model. Sure, yeah. Well, Gav, we are out of time. Uh, We finally got there. We've finally been able to chat again. Um, We did it. 
we did it. It's so good to hear that you've uh, that you're on the mend and that things are looking up for you. And it's uh, so great to chew the fat on some rugby league with you too. So look forward uh, to your output over what should be a very interesting few months for the game ahead. So Gavin Willsey, go well. And thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Cheers, John. Progressive Rugby League. Well, that made me feel good. I'm in lockdown Sydney, but I feel good. Hope you're doing well wherever you are and whatever your relationship to your local pub is. Until we next meet at the front bar with a footy on in the background, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya.